Yes. Welcome to Adulting on the Spectrum. I'm Andrew, an autistic certified financial planner. I co-run Adulting on the Spectrum with Eileen Lamb. Hey, Eileen. Hey, everyone. In this podcast, we want to highlight the real voices of autistic adults, not just inspirational stories, but people like us talking about their day-to-day life. Basically, we want to give a voice to a variety of autistic people. Today, our guest is Jenna Ottavio. Jenna is a meta-historiographical philosopher. This means she investigates how violence is reproduced over time, like decades, and in spaces, particularly hospitals, schools, and other spaces of captivity. She uses existentialism as a transcendental condition to quantify reality and forges a path between the paper and the place where phantasms of the mind exist. So that is so that we can discuss it reality together. And you might need a dictionary for some of the words in her uh, biography, but thanks for joining us, Jenna. Yes, I will happily define some of those. So to make it easier. Hi, everyone. <laughs> hey, Jenna, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we start by asking our guests how they like to identify. And I'm talking about pronouns, but also your identity as an autistic person, like person with autism, autistic on the spectrum. Tell us your preference. Hi, so my name is Jenna Dotavio. My pronouns are she, her. And I personally like the term autistic. I say that I am autistic. I say autistics as a group. And I, I like to claim that word. I think a lot of times the image of a spectrum is you know three points it's linear and I think that doesn't encapsulate autism so I still say oh I'm on the spectrum but I definitely like to reimagine the way that we discuss what a spectrum looks like. Can you tell us uh, about your diagnosis what led to it and how your life changed afterwards assuming it did? It absolutely did I think that when I learned what autism was. I don't think I've stopped thinking about it since, since then. (laughs) Uh, So throughout my whole life, people were like, oh, you're definitely autistic. And because I had a very limited understanding of what autism was, typically a really smart little boy who was great at math. And I didn't feel that I was being represented by this group that I didn't really know anything about. And so I When I was like 27, 26, I was sitting in my apartment and I was discussing splitting utilities with someone else who lived in the building. And she asked me, she goes, do you move things around in your head when you think? Like, do you put things into place? And I was like, yes, I do. And in that like split instance, I realized that there's no way that what I see in my brain is what everyone sees in their brain. And so I started to figure out, okay, how can I ask better questions about how people think? And then I started doing more research on synesthesia, which was this uh, uh, overlap of this visual thinking. And I started to see there was a large overlap in synesthesia, which is this merging of two senses, maybe a colorful smell or a a bright sound. (laughs) Um, And I started to realize, okay, maybe I am the way that I am because I'm autistic and I just never knew enough about the word and, or the definition or the history to understand that that actually represents me. 
And that gives me an answer to why I am the way that I am. So it took me about two years to get my formal diagnosis. I think that uh, a pandemic definitely makes it difficult to, uh, you know, to access maybe the process the same way. And so I don't know if it typically takes that long, but I met with a, my primary care doctor. My primary care doctor asked me why I thought I had autism. I said, I'm very sensitive to light and I'm very sensitive to sound and sounds typically take on color. So I'm distracted. And she was like, okay, I'll, I'll refer you. So then I was referred to an autism specialist and she thought I had ADHD and autism. Uh, she referred me, then I went to a psychiatrist. I met with uh, Dr. Gallo uh, at Kaiser, who is an adult autism specialist in Los Angeles. And he told me, yes, I am autistic, and but he doesn't think that I have ADHD. And he asked me, this was why. He said, do you have a hard time concentrating? And I said, no, I have the opposite. I have to set alarms to stop concentrating. And he was like, okay, so that's, you, you don't have ADHD, you have autism. And they do, they are often comorbid. But in my exact case, I, that is how I came to my diagnosis. Thank you for, for sharing that. And can you elaborate? What is uh, synthen? How do you say that again? Synesthesia. Ah, and can you elaborate on what that is and give a couple more examples? Totally. You guys, synesthesia has been studied as an overlap with mental health since Aristotle. Aristotle called it synesthesia, and it was when senses merge, when senses come together. And so an example most commonly spoken about is called grapheme color synesthesia, where an individual letter or number takes on a color. So for me, the number four is orange and it is like sort of furry, like a lion's mane, and it smells like oranges and cinnamon. But the number two is navy blue and smells like bananas at midnight. The number four is directly across from me and the number two is off somewhere far to the left. And so I, um, this is a combination of graphene color synesthesia and then time and space synesthesia. Time and space synesthesia is where numbers, letters, so graphemes, or dates like history take on a physical location in relation to the body. So for me, the year 1991 is gold and high up and to the right. And so those are two types of synesthesia. And a lot of times synesthesias overlap. There are as many potentials to overlap as um, potentials to overlap for senses. <laughs> That's super interesting. I know Andrew has a amphantasia. How do you say that? Amphantasia, probably like the yeah. complete other opposite in a lot of yeah. regards. Yeah, I can't visualize anything at all, so. There was a study done that hypothesized that aphantasiacs were not as likely to have synesthesia, but they were totally still as likely. And in fact, instead of visualizing it, they maybe are thinking of a texture and they can feel it on their skin, or maybe they're replaying loud sounds in their head or 
you know, there were so many different layers of aphantasia, synesthesia, and autism, because synesthesia is not just mental imagery, though it is commonly um, depicted as, as, as mental imagery, because I think that's probably the easiest to, like, write about. But there are so many different types of synesthesia that non-visual thinkers absolutely still have shown synesthesia. And since we're on the topic of difficult words, <laughs> your bio made me question life itself. Uh, can you tell us what is ex existentialism? <laughs> yeah, so existentialism is the study of existence. So I use transcendentalism as an object. So in Kant, in his book, Dreams of a Spirit Seer, he talks about logical illusions and transcendental illusions. Logical illusions were colorful sounds. So a, a, something that's fleeting. So if someone has chromesthesia, and they hear a really loud door slam, and maybe that loud door slam causes them to imagine bright lights. It's fleeting, it disappears. A transcendental illusion is you can't make it go away, it follows you. So for me, like the number four is orange, I can't make it go away. It is an illusion that is fixed. So it's in philosophical terms, it is a fixed object rather than a non-fixed object. Do you think autism and uh, synesthesia uh, are strengths in a, in the workplace and uh, especially in the startup world, um, which you are involved with, uh, are there any negatives you can think of? So I work for two startup organizations and one of them, uh, they're both in the tech world. So I am a business development research analyst for Binti. And we develop software to improve outcomes for young people, children, families experiencing the foster care system. So part of what my job is, is to keep track of trends and effects of bills and see how we can fill needs gaps for young people who are experiencing foster care because children in foster care are most likely to become homeless they are most likely to end up in a space of captivity like prison or jail and so children in these spaces have less access to an equal chance at life and so we develop software to improve and elevate disproportionately punished and disadvantaged communities that are experiencing foster care. So I think being autistic helps me keep track of 17 different states and trends happening in those states better. I'm able to visually separate information and project it in relation to my body. Though I might be kind of awkward and pace a lot and flap my hands, none of those supposedly negative things negatively impact me from doing my job. And I also think that, uh, so I, I do social media coordination for The Social Cipher. We are an autistic gaming company that develops 
social emotional learning games for autistic, neurodivergent, youths of all neurotypes to explore the universe and the professionals who support them and work with them. And I've been developing uh, a lot of our content for social media. And as an autistic person, I really like to think about how people think. And I think when we create spaces where people feel safe in learning, feel safe in thinking, they're no longer surveilling for threats and they can contribute. They can think about their own consciousness, their own thinking processes and find ways to, to give language to them. So, and, and uh, we had uh, Vanessa from Social Cipher uh, actually about a year ago now, Eileen, I think it's been a while. Um, and so it, it's great that you're creating social media content and tra trying to create a, a safe space. But as Eileen and I were talking about just before the podcast, you know, social media seems like almost anything but a safe place, right? And have you done any work on trends on that? Are, are things getting worse? Or are we just more in a, in a bubble surrounded by people who are, you know, even more like us, you know, politically, et cetera? Um, are we just interpreting things getting worse? Or are they actually getting worse? And is a safe pace online even possible? Um, so. I think that, okay, so P.D. Uspensky said in like 1921, the only way we can reach new levels of consciousness is if we have new ideas. The only way we can have new ideas is by reaching new levels of consciousness. I think a lot of times people agree and they don't even realize they agree because they don't use the same language. And so I think that social media can be dangerous. It can be violent. It can be hurtful. It can increase anxiety and increase depression. And, you know, autistic people are more likely to attempt suicide and to commit suicide. And so I do think that there is, um, that the trend is there, it needs to be a part of the conversation. But I do think that in this world where we have this constant access to others, constant access to information, I think it is up to people who have platforms to carve out safe places. And I have to be honest, in my own social media, you know, offer, there's been a couple of comments where someone's like, you're annoying or like, you're wrong. <laughs> and like, that's fine. Like it's, that doesn't hurt my feelings. I mean, it does a little, but not really, <laughs> you know, but I do know that like in these spaces where if we can get everyone thinking, I think that, and where everyone feels represented, we can sort of challenge this uh, negative ongoing trend that is social media. But I think we can also carve out spaces where genuine dialogue happens, where people learn something and they pass it on to six people and they pass it on to 60 people. And by the end of the week, 360 people are talking about something that one person said haphazardly in a 15 second video. There's this power of dissemination that hasn't quite existed before. So we also need to remind ourselves that we're probably not used to seeing so many things in one day horrible things, traumatizing things, sad things. We're not supposed to sort of see all of that. And so we have this like kind of collective community trauma that we are also enduring. And that social media, again, can can be both, I think, a safe haven where people feel represented or a place that makes people feel worse. 
and it can be both. I can see both sides of it. You know, there's the side where like I can find support with parents and other autistic who understand what I'm going through. And then there's the ugly part where, like you said, you know, it's like we have the same goal, the same message, but maybe the way we're trying to get our message across is different. Or I don't know, something gets lost somewhere and it just turns into this big fights on social media and insults and threats and it's just it's ugly when in the end I feel like we all want the same thing we want like you know acceptance awareness for autistic people and it just looks like we're on completely different teams when we're we're not um speaking of um different cultures have different violence um and I was uh I was struck to, to learn about um how few uh, gun deaths Japan has. Um and then coming from France to America, I mean Texas, uh everyone owns a gun here. I mean, you know, it's a big change. Uh what are your thoughts on the pretty recent shooting in uh in Texas and uh the, the response that, that followed? So in drawing, I guess, on what you said, I think that there, the gun reform in Japan, I think in order to have a gun, you have to shoot it like, I, was it a 95%? Like not even our, like the American military training is required to be shooting at, you know, 95%. So the average community member who has access to a gun based on certain laws and you know it's not just about like how well can a person shoot should they be able to have a gun but there's all these different uh, uh things put in place to protect communities and you know i think that there's a ongoing discussion you know people think that they're worried that guns are going to be taken away. And I think that that makes people buy more guns. And so it's, you know, I, I think lobbying has a say in that too. I mean, I, I, I think it is like the hooker act, something like 1996 hooker act or something like that, where like, we're not really allowed to do research on like gun violence. And I think that's a problem. And or we can't use federal funding to do research on gun violence. You know, I, I just think that like, when we limit information, nobody has the whole story and we're fighting about things that we're not, that aren't even really going on. We have like a half message and we're, we're like trying to like fill in the gaps when, you know, Australia after the one shooting in 1996, where it was a mass shooting, they said, Hey, we'll buy back all your guns. You know, no questions asked. And obviously there would have to be some like gigantic leaps in like governmental transparency before like you know maybe Americans would be willing to give up their guns without fear that they'd be on some list but I think if there really was this like potentiality for a buyback program where hey we will buy the government will buy your guns at triple the, pr the price we'll pay you three times what it's worth no questions asked and I bet they'd get a lot of guns back well, we have done gun buybacks from uh, 
municipality level, right? Like even Chicago, which is known for having, you know, horrible, you know, um, gun violence statistically, like they've done some gun buybacks, right? Um, most like larger cities have, but are you talking about on a national level then? I think that there, again, goes back to transparency. I think people are afraid they'll end up on some list. I think that they also, it is, you know, maybe it's one and a half times and maybe 300 bucks isn't really worth it. You know, you'd rather have your gun or, you know, I, I think that there, if, if we have examples, case studies of what we've done in the past, we should overlap them all and see how we can improve them and see where, okay, you know, Chicago, there's not a lot of, um, trust going on here? How can we increase trust in this program or, you know, whatever it is? Uh, where can we find you on, on social media? Because you said you do a lot on social media. Where can people find you? Instagram, Facebook, anything? Yeah, my personal TikTok is, my personal TikTok is Jenna Clementines, J-E-N-N-A-C-L-E-M-E-N-T-I-N-E-S, Jenna Clementines. And then at the social cipher and our, we're on LinkedIn, we're on TikTok, we're on Instagram, and it's at S-O-C-I-A-L-C-I-P-H-E-R, social cipher. Cool. Okay, to wrap this up, I'm going to ask you some quick fire questions. So you just tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. It's going to be especially more interesting with you. <laughs> What is your favorite uh, type of music or your favorite band? My favorite type of music, I love Sade. I listen to her probably just about every day, but I really like the Smiths. I like music that screams. I like music without words. <laughs> I, I love music. What's your favorite drink? Coffee. What's your favorite um, portrayal of autism uh, in the media? I, okay, so I don't, I don't know if, that's hard. I, that's okay. So I love Temperance Brennan. I love her brain and I like that she is quirky um, in like an encyclopedia. I like Jane the Virgin from Jane the Virgin. I think that she's actually totally schizophrenic and I love her show for it like she like see she projects versions of herself in front of her and talks to them you know and she knows that her family can't see them but she's like knows that she can I feel she is so relatable um those are my two favorites what was your dream job as a child what did you want to be a forensic pathologist. <laughs> I know I wanted to be a coroner and I even named my cat coroner and everyone thought I named him coroner. And so now he's baby cat or little cow. That's great. Uh, okay. So this is the, the question we were really looking forward to asking you that we ask all our guests uh, and Andrew's going to show you um, is glow in the dark a color, a property, or both? Like the glow in the dark you see, like the glow yeah. in the dark stars with the lights on. Is it a property? Like, did you paint it on there? Well, is, is it a color or is it is it like a, 
Is it an act? Does something glow in the dark or is it a color? I, I would say it's a color that has a film over it that makes it glow because glow in the dark is not exclusively like melted yellow, greenish gray. It is, can be but pink. When you see can this blue. color, what do you think? Well, I can feel the texture on my fingertips, but then I also imagine it's like sort of a pink texture. So I see pink. Pink? Yeah, pink? it's a pink. The texture is pink to me. Oh, the texture right. is pink, not right. Uh, okay. So would you say a color then? Would you say it's I, a color? I, okay, I feel like the the stickers are a certain color, and then they have a property painted over them that makes that color glow. <laughs> Maybe yeah. both. Yeah. Both. Yeah, we're gonna both. go both. It's a so, trick question. Yeah. Okay. Trick question. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. So. Well, thank you for joining us today. It was really great, interesting, and different, you know, in a good way. Gonna go thank question you. life itself now. So please. And just so we're clear, I'm a meta historiographical philosopher. That's the whole word. How bad did I get it? It was fine. Okay. <laughs> so well, thank you for coming. So, Thank you for having me. I had a delightful time. Yay.